think that this is our moment, man. When you get on that field, I need everything you've got all game long. We're going to dominate. We're going to play together. And we're going to find a way to win this football game. It comes to Derrick Henry off tackle left. Touchdown, Tennessee. Two drives for the Titans, a field goal, and now a touchdown. Flip pass, left it goes, Tyreek Hill, 10-5, Cheetah touchdown! And the Chiefs are on the board with the touchdown to answer the Titan touchdown. Three-man rush, now throw left side, caught, Tyreek Hill, touchdown! Kansas City, the second of the game for the Chiefs. These two touchdowns in the last two drives. Mahomes moving to his left laterally, chased, and gets out of bounds and up the sideline. He's not out of bounds yet. He's at the 10, inside the 10, he dives for the end zone. Touchdown, Kansas City. Maybe the best play yet of Patrick Mahomes' incredible young career. Third and 11, Chiefs trying to pressure Tannehill. He's under all kinds of pressure. Scrambling to his right. He's at the 35, and Dirty Dan Sorensen lights him up. He gained six. He needed 11. Handoff, Damian Williams off. Tackle this side. Touchdown! And Kansas City has a 27-17 lead. Chiefs bringing heat on Tannehill. He is sacked. Down goes Tannehill. The West Texas quarterback goes down in a flurry and a sea of red. 7.54 to go in the game. Chiefs 28, Titans 17. Pressure, but Mahomes has time here. Throws it long. He's got a man in the middle of the field. Watkins, 15, 10, 5, angling left. Touchdown, Kansas City. A 60-yard bomb. 35-24, Kansas City. 1.28 to go in the game. Fourth and six for the Titans from their own 35. Tannehill under pressure, still moving to his right. Frank Clark chasing, knocks him down. Tannehill goes down. Frank Clark, the shark, has just given Kansas City its first trip to the Super Bowl in 50 years. Hail, hail to the king of the Chiefs kingdom forever. Because today, the team that Lamar Hunt founded has just won Lamar Hunt's trophy in the stadium that was Lamar Hunt's dream. Kansas City is the AFC champion. They are headed to Miami. Uh, yeah, I know. If you need Kleenex, we can pass the boxes around and dab your eyes at that beautiful, beautiful scene. Uh, the Chiefs are going to Miami. It's what Mitch Holtz says. They're in Miami. I'm a little surprised I'm not in Miami, if I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, I know the tickets are ridiculously expensive and that sort of thing, and that wouldn't even cover, you know, transportation and lodging and food and, and that sort of thing, but I was still looking to see, is there anything? And I found one ad for Super Bowl tickets I might, I thought might just be what I was looking for. Here's what the ad said. A buddy of mine has two tickets for Super Bowl 54, box seats plus airfares, accommodations, etc., but... He didn't realize when he bought the Super Bowl package, the game would be on the same day as his wedding, so he cannot go. If you're interested and want to go instead of him, it's at St. Peter's Church in Kansas City at 5 p.m. Her name is Louise. She'll be the one in the white dress. Thanks for your help. So I... I've been a Chiefs fan as long as I can remember. Uh, my first game, I was eight years old. I got to go with my Uncle Bob and my dad and my two brothers uh, to Arrowhead. And, you know, I, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure that's probably what it was. But also, it was like 
In the 1980s, the AFC was very different from the NFC, and the Chiefs were in the AFC West. And so how it worked in our house on Sundays, you'd go home after church, and we would always have this massive Sunday dinner. It would take forever. And then after dinner, Mom and Dad would say to my two brothers and me, it's time for your nap. And so from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock, we'd have to take a nap. It was just terrible. We hated it. We would actually love it if someone would tell us to take a nap now. But uh, in those days, and so the clock would just tick by. And at, finally, at 3 o'clock, we'd be able to get up. And in the fall, almost always, the Chiefs were the late game. And so we'd watch the Chiefs. And they're taking on teams like, you know, the Chargers when they had uh, Air Coriel. And it was just long pass after long pass after long pass. And we just loved it. The Chiefs didn't win. I mean, they were terrible in the 80s. I think they had two winning seasons in the 80s, but that all changed uh, in 1989. Uh, take, are you taking notes on this? This is really important Chiefs history. Uh, Marty Schottenheimer is hired. He brings Marty Ball to Kansas City, and it wasn't as much fun to watch, except they won all the time. A running game with Krishna Koye, the Nigerian nightmare, and then uh, the defense led by Hall of Famer Derek Thomas. In the 1990s, the Chiefs were one of only four teams to win over 100 games. And so it was the Dallas Cowboys and the Buffalo Bills and uh, the San Francisco 49ers, we don't care about them, Um, and the Chiefs, only four teams to win over 100 games. The other teams all made the Super Bowl, but my Chiefs never did until this year. And even this year, it felt like, oh no, it's going to be another one of those heart rate, they're down 24, the first playoff game. I, I preach, and then I have Alpha, and I'm so excited to go watch the Chiefs playoff game. Alpha ends, I get in the car, and there's a blocked punt, and the uh, Texans run it back for a touchdown. The Chiefs are down 14. By the time I get home, they're down 24 to nothing, and I'm thinking, when does baseball season start? But somehow, <laughs> they came back and won, and, and they're in the Super Bowl, and for like the first time in my lifetime, I'm excited about the game more than I am the commercials, or the halftime entertainment, or that sort of thing. I... Apparently, our you know, production team doesn't know football. They've got Vikings colors going on back there. Why don't we have Chiefs colors? I mean, oh, look at that. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. So, um, all right, all right, all right. We've got to regroup here. We're not here to worship my favorite NFL team. Uh, we're actually here to worship Jesus. Uh, we're here to talk about what does it look like to shape our lives as, as followers of Jesus around his life. And part of what that means, if we're serious about being followers of Jesus, you got to understand Jesus is going to call you into the game. More than just being a fan of Jesus or a fan of the church and sitting in the uh, crowd and clapping and say, yeah, go team, go. Jesus wants us on the field of faith. I want to start with this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll put it on the screen and let's read this out loud together. Christ makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. So the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Ephesus. He writes other letters to other churches that get included in the New Testament of our Bible. And in many places, he uses this kind of illustration. He compares the church to a human body. And so the church becomes known as kind of the body of Christ. One body, many parts. And and each of the parts matter. Each of the parts kind of plays its own special role. Uh, The head can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. And the eye can't say to the ear, I have no need of you. 
Every part matters. Every part is needed. Every part belongs. And one of the interesting things about the way Paul writes about it, he says, if one part of the body is suffering, the whole body is suffering. If one part of the body is rejoicing, the whole body rejoices. If, if Paul was writing today, he might use an illustration of team sports to kind of convey a similar idea. Right, the offense can't say to the defense, we have no need of you. The quarterback can't say to the offensive line, we have no need of you. Although if you watch the Chiefs the last two years, it kind of seemed like they were playing that way. I mean, Patrick Mahomes burst onto the scene, this quarterback last year. His first year as a starter, he becomes the MVP of the National Football League, passed for 50 touchdowns, over 5,000 yards, just the second guy in the history of the National Football League to do that. Uh, the offense was incredible, and uh, he would throw left-handed passes. He would throw no-look passes like he's playing basketball or something. And the Chiefs had the best record in the league, but the defense kind of let him down in, in the playoffs, and they lost to the uh, mm, Patriots. Well, <laughs> they're not playing this year, are they? Um, <laughs> like the, only the first time in 20 years they're not playing, but anyway. Uh, this year started pretty similarly. All offense for the Chiefs. But I, I kind of feel like the turning point in the season was about, uh, not quite halfway through the season, Patrick Mahomes got injured and he had to miss a couple of games. And, and this is just my observation. I'm guessing no one on the defense would agree with me uh, at this point at all. But what it kind of seemed like to me is the defense, when Mahomes is healthy, they just trusted he's going to make some miraculous play and will win the game. All we need to do is make one or two plays so that uh, the offense can outscore the other team and, and we'll be good. But when he got injured, that kind of changed. When Mahomes was on the sideline, all of a sudden the defense started to say, oh, we better pick it up a little bit. With Mahomes on the sideline, the defense started to play their own special role, do their own special work, and the whole team kind of changed from that point on. The last six games of the season, it was the Chiefs' defense, like only 11.5 points per game they gave up, so we'll see how that goes today. But uh, there's a church in the Kansas City area. Uh, United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. And Hope has developed a relationship with, with this church over the years. Uh, the staff at Resurrection has come up to Hope, and we've spent a day just talking about, hey, what are you doing, and, and what is working, and what is not working, and lessons that you've learned. And we've taken our staff to Kansas City for a similar kind of thing. When we were looking to build this facility, we went and visited Res West, the first kind of satellite campus of, of that church, and what did they learn in the building process, moving from a gymnasium to a, an actual church, that sort of thing. The senior pastor is Adam Hamilton at Church of the Resurrection, and he sat down with a couple of former Chiefs players. He sat down with the longtime voice of the Chiefs, Mitch Holtzis, and they had a little bit of a conversation around teams. What, what is it? And everybody's been on teams that win and teams that don't win so much, and what kind of makes the difference? What is the secret sauce? Take a look. Well, once again, I think it was the locker room. Uh, you know, I think it was seven, nine years, there was a lot of infighting, there was a lot of locker room lawyering. There were a lot of guys who weren't on the same page. There was a lot of guys who were putting themselves first and not the team. Uh, there was a lot of guys that uh, decided that um, doing the little things and, and being the best they possibly could be was not on the uh, forefront. In the 13 and 3 year, uh, we had better leadership. You know, we wanted to make sure that we had success personally, but also as a team. I think football more so than any other sport, it's, it's a team-driven team-driven sport. I think if any aspect or phase of the game doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, 
then the whole thing crumbles. You can do it between the three aspects of the game, the offense, defense, and special teams. You can do it within the framework of that individual unit. So if the offensive line doesn't do their job, then the running back and the quarterback are going to have a hard time doing their job. Receivers are going to, if they're not doing their job, it's going to mess up the timing for the linemen and their protections. Uh, everything ties together. And I will say this, football teams can be fractured a thousand ways. Offense to defense, racial issues, I'm chasing stats instead of chasing the wrong things. And I would say, generally overall, the teams that have been the most successful that I've been around are those that understand how they interconnect. How really my game, my stats are really not worth it in, unless somehow we connect as a team. That's what I've sensed in this year's Chiefs team. In Ephesians 4, Paul's talking about unity in the body of Christ. We're one body, many parts. As each part does its own special work, the whole body gets healthy and growing and full of love. This is, this is how we stay united as the body of Christ. I, I like the language that uh, those guys used. It's, it's all tied together. Interconnectedness was one of the words that they used. I think Paul is getting at that in Ephesians 4. What, is it, what does interconnectedness in the church actually look like? And if you really believe this, if it's true what Paul says, when one part suffers, we all suffer. When one part rejoices, we all rejoice. If it's that kind of interconnection, then part of what he's saying is, what happens to you happens to me. What happens to you happens to me. And we get a real clear example of this in this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Uh, the story of this miraculous feeding of this huge crowd, it actually begins with Jesus receiving news that John the Baptist has been violently killed. And, and I want to pause just for a second because one of the big stories this week was the death of Kobe Bryant his daughter, seven other people in a helicopter crash in Southern California. I didn't know Kobe, never met him, never talked to him, never exchanged emails with him. I never even saw the Lakers play live. I was only connected to Kobe from afar, and yet the, the limited connection I had, and I think a lot of people felt the same way, when the news came out about this crash, it was like a punch in the stomach. And for hours, days for some people, you're just kind of wandering around with this stunned emptiness. What a horrible, tragic thing. And that's someone we're pretty disconnected from. Here's Jesus. He's very connected to John the Baptist. They're cousins, family members. They are um, colleagues in ministry. John the Baptist is the one who baptizes Jesus. And he finds out that he's dead. And here's what Matthew says happens. Verse 13, as soon as Jesus heard the news, he left in a boat to a remote area to be alone. Needed to be alone, needed to have some time to grieve, uh, to kind of regroup, to, to think about what, what does this mean for how I'm going to do my ministry. He needed some time to heal his heart that was hurting. He knows he needs to be alone, but he's unable to actually get to a place where he can be alone. Because as he tries to go to this remote area, the crowd finds out about it, and the crowd follows him. The crowd will not let Jesus be alone. I was reading through the story, and I was thinking, you know, parents of young children, I think moms in particular of young children, understand what it's like to want to be alone and feel like you just can't get any alone time. The younger your kids are, I mean, you, you understand that your job is to meet the needs of your children. That's what you sign up for, and so you read to them, and you play games with them, and 
you know, you comfort them when they're hurt and you uh, feed them when they are hungry. And again, it's all part of the gig, but there comes a limit, doesn't there, where you're just like, man, I could use some adult time or some alone time, but the younger your kids are, it's harder to get, so you just take it wherever you can. Like, you go into the bathroom and you lock the door for two minutes, just some alone time, and then they start pounding on the door, mommy, mommy. Jesus needed alone time, and he's unable to get it because of the crowd just keeps following him, and this needy, needy crowd. Let's read together how Jesus responds in verse 14. Read it out loud with me. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. This is a picture of Jesus understanding interconnectedness. What's happening to them is happening to me. And so instead of being upset, instead of saying, would you just leave me alone? Instead of getting angry, he has compassion on them. The Greek word that gets translated compassion is one of the best Greek words in the New Testament, splonknitzomai. The, the first part of it is splonk. Let's all say that together. Splonk. It's like the plural of spleens. Oh, the plural of spleen, I guess. Anyway, splonk nitzomai literally means to be moved in the bowels. Uh-huh. Uh, in Jesus' day, people believed the center, the seat of emotions in our body, it wasn't our heart, it was our innermost being, our internal organs. And so you, if you have a gut reaction to something, a visceral reaction to something, it's splonk nitzomai, and we translate it compassion, but it only shows up 12 times in the New Testament, and each time it shows up, it, it tells us something really unique about the kind of compassion Jesus had, the kind of compassion we're to have in the body of Christ. It's compassion that always leads to action. Compassion that always leads to action. So in Mark chapter 1, there's a guy who has leprosy, and he comes to Jesus hoping, begging that Jesus might be able to help him. Mark writes, moved with compassion. And again, it's the word smoknitzomai. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. In Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, we discover what makes the Good Samaritan good is smoknitzomai. When he saw the man, the man who had been beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Splunknitzomai. It's the kind of compassion that's more than just like, oh, did you see that story or did you hear that news story about that terrible thing that happened? Don't you feel sorry for them? Don't you have pity on them? It's more than that. It's being moved to this place where you want to move toward the people who are hurting, toward the people who are in need of help, and to offer them the kind of help that they need, which is why this weekend it's Super Bowl weekend at Lutheran Church of Hope. The statistics say one out of nine Iowans are food insecure, and food insecure simply means if I don't get help, I'm going to be hungry. And so the Super Bowl food drive is a way of trying to meet that need, seeing the need and then moving with action to meet the need. All of the Hope campuses this weekend, we're doing this. As you heard in the announcements, we're trying to you know, stock the shelves of every food pantry in central Iowa. Think about that. That's a crazy goal. And yet we're able to do it as each part does its own special work. And so again, the challenge for you, even if you've already brought in food, maybe you need to go to the grocery store again and make a last-minute run for some Velveeta and Rotel, grab a bunch of stuff from the, 
Maybe, maybe. Grab a bunch of stuff from our list and, and bring it back to the church. It'll be open all afternoon. This is an incredible way for us to actually be the church, uh, to display Splunk Nitzamai. And I want you to know, again, it's not just something we do one weekend out of the year. We're committed to fighting hunger all year long. Pete talked about the cupboard, uh, the food pantry we have here at Hope. We have one staff person that we pay 10 hours a week to kind of oversee uh, the cupboard. The rest of it's all done by volunteers. Volunteers who are here on Tuesdays to distribute the food, to talk to the people who come in and love them and relate with them in that sort of way. People who come throughout the week make trips to the food bank of Iowa to pick up food and bring it back here and sort it and get it ready for Tuesdays. It's amazing what's happening, and if that's a passion area for you, we just want you to know you can always, we can always use more volunteers in, in that particular ministry. Uh, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 14, is healing this crowd. He's having compassion on them, and it, it's taken like all day. And it doesn't take very long before it is the end of the day, and the disciples are kind of observing, right? They are starting to be moved with compassion as they see it's late in the day and there's nothing to eat. We're in this remote place. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no McDonald's. There's no pizza delivery drivers. Jesus, you need to send this huge crowd away so they can go and feed themselves. And Jesus' response is pretty interesting. No, we don't need to send them away. You feed them, Jesus says. You feed them. This is Jesus calling them into the game. And and as Jesus calls us into the game, he asks us to move from a place of compassionate observation. Oh, I see that they are hungry. They should go do something about it. Jesus asks us to move from a place of compassionate observation to a place of compassionate action. You feed them, Jesus says. The problem is uh, the disciples' vision is limited. They don't see what Jesus sees. What the disciples see is this massive crowd of people. What the disciples see are limited resources. We have only five loaves of bread. We have only two fish. How can we possibly, with our limited resources, feed this huge crowd of people? They know it's impossible. It would take an act of God. It would take a miracle to feed this crowd. I wonder if you ever find yourself in a similar place convinced, just absolutely believing you do not have what you need. And when you look at particular circumstances in your life, uh, realities in your life, you find yourself shrugging your shoulders, shaking your head, just like there's nothing that can be done. Resources are too limited. I don't have enough. I don't have what I need in order to change things, in order to fix things. The only thing that could make a difference would be if God moved there was a miracle. And so the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, when you think about it, it's people who need food get what they need. People who need food get what they need. I wonder what it is you need today. I wonder what it is when you came into worship today or last night as you were trying to fall asleep and you just couldn't fall asleep because this thing was weighing heavy on your mind and you just couldn't stop thinking about it, couldn't stop worrying about it, wondering, how are we going to do this? What is it that you need? The reality is we all need something that only God can give. There's this verse in Psalm 109 I'd like us to read out loud together. Two verses. It's on the screen. Read it with me. I am poor and needy. My heart is full of pain. 
Help me, O Lord my God. Save me because of your unfailing love. Uh, That's C.J. Beathard. He's one of the backup quarterbacks for the San Francisco 49ers. In 2015, he was the quarterback for the Iowa Hawkeyes when the Hawks had a pretty decent season. Uh, went 12-0 in the regular season. They made it to the Big Ten Championship game and in the Rose Bowl. Before the season, in the spring game, C.J. Beathard met a 14-year-old Hawkeye fan named Jay. And they developed a relationship. They exchanged phone numbers. They began a texting relationship. That fall, the fall of 2015, before every game, Jay, this 14-year-old, would text C.J., the starting quarterback, a Bible verse as a way of encouraging him before the game. Kind of cool. And it's one thing to have faith when things are going great. One thing to have faith when you're in the middle of an undefeated season. One thing to have faith when you are winning at life. Something else to have faith when you're poor and needy and your heart is full of pain. So about six weeks ago, the week leading up to Christmas, as the 49ers are making this march to the Super Bowl, uh, C.J. Beathard got horrible news. His younger brother had been killed. He has to leave the team. He goes back to Nashville to be with his family uh, for a funeral, this bereavement leave. He's back with the team now. He's in Miami at the Super Bowl. And the Super Bowl is like this media frenzy, Super Bowl week, and all kinds of reporters interviewing all, all of these players. And so one of the reporters sat down with C.J. Beathard just to talk to him. I know you're a man of faith. I also know what's been going on with your family, and how do you kind of reconcile these two realities? Here's part of what C.J. said. There's two ways you can go in a situation like this. You can give up on faith or get even deeper in it. Over this last month, I dove into the Bible more than I ever have, just trying to find some peace, trying to find God's promises about heaven, just knowing where my brother is. He was a Christian. He wore it on his sleeve. He wasn't afraid to share it. So knowing the hope that I have, I know I'll see him again someday. That's really what gets me through. Without being faithful, I don't know where I'd be. It's tough enough as it is. Life is tough enough as it is. How do you get through life without faith? How do you get through life without a God who saves us because of God's unfailing love? On our website, we've got a place where people can submit prayer requests. And every Thursday, the prayer requests get uh, compiled in a list and sent out to the prayer team and to the staff so we can be praying for people. This week, the list was a lot longer than it normally is. I don't know why that happens. Um, End of January, that starts to be one of those times of the year where people are just like fed up, right? Holidays are far behind us now, and it's kind of the middle of winter, and until yesterday, had the sun even shined since Christmas? I mean, it was just bleak. And, and so sometimes people get to this place at the end of January where they're like, I can't do it on my own. I don't have what it takes. I don't have enough. I need help. I need God. And so these prayer requests start coming in. And they're devastating. It's like people who have, uh, they're battling cancer or they have family members battling cancer. Parents who have kids who are sick and just horrible diagnoses. And sometimes the parents can't get any answers from the medical professionals, I don't know what's going on. We don't know how to help your child. Addictions, this demon that keeps rearing its head in people's lives and ruining relationships, ruining families. We had a couple of calls this week come down to the hospital because such just random tragic things are 
happening in people's lives. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm guessing you've been, maybe it's not this week for you, but I'm, I'm guessing when we read through this, it takes you right to a specific situation that you've had to go through. I'm poor and needy and my heart is full of pain. Help me, O Lord my God. Save me because of your unfailing love. And so this month, February, at Lutheran Church of Hope, every weekend, we're going to be looking at the miracles of Jesus. And one of the reasons we look at the miracles of Jesus is to be reminded who God is and what God does. When we look at Jesus, we see a God who doesn't just relate to us with compassionate observation. We see a God who moves, a God who enters into our world, enters into our pain, a God who acts with compassion towards us, to help us, to save us, because that's how much God loves us. When we look at the miracles of Jesus, we can be reminded this is the kind of stuff God has done in the past, and maybe it will give us the kind of faith to believe God can do it again. He's done it before, maybe God can do it again. Psalm 107 is one of my favorite psalms. It's just story after story after story reminding us. Remember that time God showed up and did this? Remember that time God helped those people? Remember how God saved and rescued those people? And three different times this verse gets repeated. Let's read this out loud together. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done. Repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Let's praise the Lord for the wonderful things he has done. We all have blessings in our life. We all have burdens in our life. How much time are you spending praising the Lord for the wonderful things compared to just feeling crushed by the burdens in your life? One of the things I love about preaching on Super Bowl weekend is I get to read about the faith of some of the people who will be participating. And every other year in my life, it's been other teams and it's been, uh, I don't care who wins, but I'm going to root for these particular players. This year, I get to tell you about the faith of some of my favorite players. So Patrick Mahomes, quarterback for the Chiefs, he's 24 years old and he's just ridiculously grounded and humble and he understands team and it all comes from his faith. My faith has always been a big part of what I do. I've grown up in church and faith really helps you know why you're playing the game and who you're doing it for. He says, you know, he goes to chapel on Saturday nights before the games. They've got a a chaplain for the Chiefs. And his prayer is that whether they win or lose, he would act in such a way that God would get glory. The video that we watched at the beginning of the service from the AFC Championship game, they win the Lamar Hunt Trophy. He's the founder of the Chiefs. He's the one that comes up with the name Super Bowl. Uh, Lamar Hunt, his son Clark, is now uh, the owner of the Chiefs. And yeah, he wants to win football games, absolutely. But he says, that's not my identity. My identity is my faith in Christ. We want our employees to develop spiritually. We want our employees to develop spiritually, including the players. And so all the players who sign a contract to play for the Chiefs, one of the things that they are signing up for is five days of community service. And that comes from uh, Clark Hunt's understanding of Splunknitzomai. No, it doesn't, but it kind of fits in. Like, how do we have compassionate action? How do we reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ? They don't have to do it from a faith perspective, but many of the players do. Uh, We're one body, many parts, every part matters. There's not one part that is less important than another part. Sometimes on a football team, sometimes they say, well, the kickers don't really matter. But the kickers matter 
The kickers really matter. And so one of my favorite players is Dustin Colquitt, the punter for the Chiefs, a man of incredible faith. He has been on the Chiefs for 15 years, played in more games than any other Chief player, and he wants to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ. They've got this, you know, we've we got to do community service stuff. We've got to do community service stuff. So Dustin Colquitt started a foundation. Uh, in 2007, he heard a story of a 12-year-old boy who had an abscessed tooth the parents couldn't afford to take him to the dentist, and the infection from that abscessed tooth went into his brain and killed him. And Dustin Colquitt, more than having com observe, observing compassion, decided we've got to do something about this. So he started forming partnerships with dentists and um, you know, oral professionals and other sports teams around uh, the country, and they have this nonprofit called Team Smile. And they go around and they put on these uh, free clinics for kids to come in who could really use, whose parents can't afford to take them to the dentist. And he says, it all springs from this. God always finds a way to put people, his people, in situations where he can spread his word and spread his kingdom. It's actually a ton. Of, number 95 on the defensive line, Chris Jones, strong man of faith. The kicker, Harrison Butker, strong man of faith. I'm sure there are Christians on the Niners too, but I just didn't want to look because I want to... <laughs> I'm cheering for the Chiefs. <laughs> and January, I, can I just tell you, this has been the best January of my life. It's been so, I'm just, look at all the wonderful things God is doing. And I thought, I really thought, this message was just going to be this raw, raw message, go team, go. But the closer we got to the weekend, the more I just felt like, I, I don't think most people are having the kind of month that I'm having. I think more people are in this I'm poor and needy and my heart is full of pain kind of place. And so I, was, I just, I was struggling to figure out how I wanted to end the message. And then Friday night, uh, you know, I, I write my sermon on Thursday. Friday night, I just kind of read through it, try to get it into my head. And I just wasn't quite, I'm not sure it's ending in the right kind of place. And um, I was watching the Los Angeles Lakers had their first home basketball game since Kobe Bryant's death. And so before the game, they had kind of a celebration of Kobe's life. And I, I didn't know if I wanted to talk about Kobe or not, because it's like tragedy happens in all sorts of arenas all the time. Why would we point to a wealthy, professional athlete that most of us can't really relate to? I, I actually think there's something pretty relatable about Kobe. Complicated guy, far from perfect, just like you and me made some horrible, horrible mistakes in his past. Part of the reality, when he made those mistakes, when he really hurt people badly, he was heaped up with a burden of guilt and trying to figure out how do you move forward after that kind of a mistake? Is grace real for me? And Kobe had a conversion experience. He grew up in the Catholic Church, always been kind of a believer, but Something changed. Something changed in his life. And so uh, I didn't realize until this week I was reading about it because I don't really like the Lakers. I like the Portland Trailblazers, and the Lakers are always beating them. But I was reading about Kobe and the way he threw himself into being a, a father in particular since his retirement, coaching his daughter's team, kind of an advocate for women in sports, 
And so I, I want you to watch a couple of clips I'm, I'm going to show you. One is a, he's talking to Stephen A. Smith, and he's talking about guilt and a burden um, and what faith in Jesus has to do when we carry that kind of a burden. And then it's going to flow into Usher singing Amazing Grace, and I think really starting to preach at the end of it. And so I don't think this is really about Kobe. This is about you. It's about God. It's about what do you need that only God can do for you. Take a look. God is great. Is it that simple? God is great. Don't get no simpler than that, bro. Did you know that? I mean, I'm, I'm, everybody knows that, but the way you know it now, did you know it before that incident took place? You can know it all you want, but until you got to pick up that cross that you can't carry, and he picks it up for you and carries you and the cross, then you know. Thank you. 
right now just send your grace for wretches like you and me who need something only God can give us we remember what it is we need when we come to the Lord's table 